Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. And we talk a lot about personal situation, and that's obviously a key into any type of investing. And age is a big one, because obviously as you age and you approach retirement more, you might want to shift your asset allocation. Well, Shani, we are recording this about a week after your birthday. Yeah. And you have aged. I have aged. And not just I was wondering where you were going with that. I know, <laughs> I know. And not just and not just any age, you have reached a new decade of your life. I have. I'm in my thirties now. I know. How are you feeling about it? Pretty good. I feel like this is when life starts, you know? Okay. I read in the paper the other day that you become an adult. I think it's at twenty eight now. Well, I've been an adult for two years now, so it doesn't yeah. really feel much different. Well, at some point, it'll start showing, right? So what did you do for your 30th birthday? I had a party in New York. Okay. Where'd you have it? Uh, down in kind of close to Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, so just this bar that was across the street from where a friend lived. Nice. Yeah. Okay. It was okay. I don't really remember much about it. <laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah. I, I meant mostly because it was so long ago. All right. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Why don't we why don't we get started? Sounds good. So Morningstar is a proponent of investing globally to increase portfolio diversification. Our suggested allocation for an aggressive portfolio calls for a 48% allocation to global equities with a 34% weighting for Australian equities with a remainder made up of other asset classes. Investing in global markets provides exposure to industries that might not be as common in an investor's home country and insulates investors from localized economic issues. And we need to remember that just living in a country makes you exposed to the local economy. Your house price and your employment are all likely tied to it. There is no way you can fully escape this from investing, but it doesn't hurt to gain exposure to other economies. And today we're going to answer a question that we get asked often, and it's centered around how we should invest internationally in an increasingly globalized world. International exposure can be achieved in more than one way. So you can invest in a company trading on an international exchange an ETF or a fund that contains international securities, or you could buy a domestic stock that is operations globally. That last method is often ignored by investors, but still provides underlying exposure to a variety of markets, which is the point of diversifying globally in the first place. It also happens to have some heavyweights in its corner. But Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard and Warren Buffett of Warren Buffett fame, are proponents. They both believed that investing in U.S. companies would have enough diversification to provide the desired benefits. And Jack Bogle expressed these views in a book that he wrote in 1993. While Buffett has simply stated investors directing 90% of their assets to domestic equities and 10% to treasury bonds is enough diversification. And a lot has changed in the world since they expressed these views. We've had unrestrained expansion of multinationals seeping into different economies around the world and deepening their roots. We've also, in the past few years, seen a contraction of this after COVID exposed dependencies of nations on external producers for essential goods. And this phenomenon, so Shani tells me, has been coined (laughs) slowbilization, which I've never never seen the source for that, by the way. So I think Shani might have made that (laughs) up. It was a Morningstar report. (laughs) Okay, well, there we go. I guess we made it up. Um, And in part of this slowbilization, offshoring has been replaced with onshoring and reshoring. And 
certainly we talked about COVID, or Shani just talked about COVID, but we've also had inflation. There is the war in Europe, and there's a lot of geopolitical tensions. And a lot of this has exposed the downside of global supply chains, and it's really caused a lot of countries to look more at self-sufficiency. So the question is, did the argument for investing in domestic multinationals for international exposure have a leg to stand on? And if it does, after globalization, is it still relevant? And we should mention that both Bogle and Buffett have admitted that this approach is not driven by hard data, but instead it's driven by preference. And this preference is shared by many investors, especially in Australia, where we have a strong home bias to the Australian market. And this is driven, obviously, by the difficulties and costs associated with international investing. Yeah, and this makes it difficult sometimes to access international investing. A lot of progress has certainly been made to lower the barrier of entry for individual investors in Australia by broadening the country's service by brokers and offering ETFs with international market exposure. The only disclaimer here is that these barriers have been lowered mostly for U.S. exposure. If you're looking at direct equity investing in another country, you're likely still paying a huge premium for that brokerage. There's also the unfamiliarity with companies in other countries. So adding to the foreign economy and market conditions, investors also have to get their heads around the ins and outs of companies that they're investing in, which they probably are more unfamiliar with compared to domestic companies that are household names. This isn't always the case, but it can add a level of complexity for investors that just may put international investing in the too hard basket. What we do see to combat this, however, is an increased amount of exposure to international equities through collective investment vehicles. So managing this allocation by just outsourcing to professional investors to handle it, and whether that's an active or a passive strategy. Then there's currency. So we've done an episode on this recently and the considerations around currency, but In summary, stock performance is only one part of your investment return. The other part is currency. So a weaker or stronger Australian dollar against the currency of the company you're investing in will add or detract from your investment returns. And then you also have to consider the cost of foreign exchange. And then, of course, investors love ranking credits and know they'll be missing out on that. So given all of these extra considerations, it is understandable that investors are avoiding international investing and relying on multinationals to give them exposure to international markets. So this study that I mentioned, Morningstar has recently conducted research on whether investors can expect to receive the same diversification benefits by investing in multinationals that are based in their home market. And this study is the one with globalization. Yes. Okay. Well, the study is from June 2022. So that word has been around for over six months at this point, which is interesting. And I had never heard it. But the study was conducted across 48 different markets represented by Morningstar country indexes. Then that's aggregated into the Morningstar Global Markets Index. The Morningstar Global's market index is a broad gauge of equities across developed and emerging markets, and it contains 8,399 constituents. So this research is conducted on a yearly basis, so it does allow us to benchmark globalization in a way and see whether countries and the overall global markets have become more or less globalized. So before we dive into the research, I think it's important to explain that ultimately, this is an exercise in understanding whether domestic equities give investors enough diversification. And we do need to acknowledge that not all domestic markets are built the same. So sure, there might be multinationals in every country, maybe not North Korea though, Shani. No. Okay, probably not. And we're able to measure globalization, of course, looking at these multinationals and where they get their revenue. 
but we're not talking at all about sector concentration. And that is a concern for Australia, which we'll talk about in a second. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. And stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. Let's dive into the results of this report, and then we can discuss what this means for investors, including whether they should ditch their international investments. Yeah. And I mean, who are we, Shani, to disagree with Bogle and Buffett? Well, I guess we'll see. We're basing this on data and not a gut feeling. Their guts are pretty good, though. So (laughs) which who would be who if we were Bogle and Buffett? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Who's older? Well, well Bog- I guess Bogle's, Bogle's dead. Bogle's so. dead, so I guess that would be me then. Okay. Anyway, we look at the 48 countries in the index compared to a year ago, and we found that 25 markets became less domestic or more international, and 18 became more domestic, and five stayed constant. And when we look at regions, the world's four largest equity markets, the US, Japan, the UK, and China... They all sourced larger shares of revenue internationally than they did last year, but there were all small moves, 1% or 2% less domestic revenue. And if we look at economic sectors, it didn't really seem to be a strong driver of change between being more global or less global. So Australia, of course, is very resource heavy, and that's similar to Brazil and Chile and the United Arab Emirates, and all of those countries became more global. But that's also similar to Canada, Peru, Saudi Arabia, Norway, South Africa, and Qatar. They're also resource-heavy, and they did not become more global. So this is the same for technology-heavy markets. There's just no clear trend. And looking at Australia and the similarly populated and resource-oriented Canada, they are both around a 50-50 split domestic and international. Canada sources 30% of their revenue from the US, but China is Australia's biggest external market at 13%. The only other economies that are more dependent on China are Taiwan at 18% and Hong Kong at 17%. Both places I've lived. Well, there you go. All places you've lived. Yeah. So the US sources more revenue internationally than it did last year, where I've also lived. And that was due to multinational goliaths such as Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, and Alphabet. There are also many markets that increase their U.S. revenue representation with Ireland, Canada, Switzerland, Denmark, Taiwan, the U.K., Germany, France, and Belgium, <laughs> all having more than 20% of their revenue coming from the U.S. So this dependency, of course, recalls the famous adage that if the U.S. sneezes, others catch the flu. Comparatively, emerging markets like Egypt, Pakistan, China, Peru, and Indonesia remain the most domestically oriented. In contrast, European markets remain the world's most global with favorable trade conditions and geographical proximity. 
and excluding Greece, European markets are dominated by global companies. Overall, we can see that markets are globalizing as opposed to this view of slobalization, which seems to be the dominant narrative. It's important to remember, though, that comparing companies and their regional revenue is only one part of the picture, and they are not comparative to national economies. So let's look at a company example and what exposure that means for an investor. Okay, so we're going to look at Sanofi. So Sanofi is a French multinational pharmaceutical and healthcare company, covers a suite of medical issues, and is the world's biggest vaccine producer. And naturally, this means their operations are global and their revenue is diversified into different markets. For example, a dengue fever vaccine in 18 countries and Menactra, a meningococcal vaccine that is the first to be approved for use in infants, is widely used. Sanofi is listed on Euronex Paris as well as the New York Stock Exchange. If you're a French investor investing in Sanofi, you would be exposed to the United States, which is 36% of revenue. Europe accounts for 19%. France only accounts for 5.76%, and other countries account for 33%. It has steadily become more and more globalized, with less revenue originating in France as the years move on. This means that although, as a French investor, you are investing in a domestic equity, you're reliant on the revenue streams from other markets for your investment to succeed. And here's where it gets a little complicated. In short, although it does give exposure to the country it is invested in, it's not a replacement for direct foreign investment. And we'll come back to this. Let's take a look at Australian companies and the regions from which they derive revenue. Australia's market is composed heavily of financials and resources. When we look at the stocks with the highest market capitalization, we can see the big four banks with resources intertwined. The composition of revenue regions for the banks are similar for the most part. Australia makes up the majority of their revenue, ranging from 63.87% for ANZ to 86% for Combank. New Zealand makes up most of the rest of the revenue, but ANZ is a bit of an outlier with 13% of their revenue coming from outside of Australia and New Zealand. Ultimately, this is not a significant percentage of international revenue. Mining and resources are a little bit of a different story but offer mainly exposure to China, with BHP deriving 56.25% of their revenue from China and 12.91% from Japan. They only get 2.53% from Australia. Woodside is similar, with 84.9% of revenue coming from Asia and just over 4% coming from Oceania as a whole. Although it does offer exposure through international revenue streams, they are skewed heavily towards one region. When we're looking at revenue sources for public companies, it's only just one piece of the exposure that you get to a country. Foreign investment allows you to access opportunity sets in sectors that are not available domestically. For example, in Australia, the technology sector is nascent. You're able to access technology companies in other countries where the industry is stronger and more developed, such as the US, Korea and Germany, with economic and regulatory frameworks there to support the success of those industries. It also allows you to access undervalued opportunities. Morningstar's market valuation indicator gives us a good example. It is a representation of our Morningstar fair value estimate and tells investors the bottom-up, long-term intrinsic value of a market. Helps investors see beyond the present market price. What it also does is to show which markets currently have more opportunities for investors to take advantage of. It does this by taking all of our analyst valuations in the market and rolling them up to an aggregate number. As we record this, Australia has a price-to-fair value of around one, and all of the price-to-fair values that we will mention are as 
are as the 28th of February. So price to fair value of one. That means that the market overall is fairly valued. As an Aussie investor, this doesn't mean that there are no opportunities, but there are few and far between. Let's jump over to the US. 0.91 price to fair value, which is not bad, but not very attractive. China, 0.75. That indicates a pretty good hunting ground. And this is in line with the belief of many professional investors and money managers who believe that the prospects for emerging markets over the next 10 years, especially China, are attractive. And the International Monetary Fund projects emerging markets and developed economies to grow at 4% in 2023. And that's pretty good, but not as good as China's forecast growth of 5.2%. Advanced economies are predicted to cap at 1.2%. But just remember that the economic growth in a company and GDP growth does not necessarily mean good stock market returns. But anyway, there is a lot more growth that are in a lot of these emerging markets. So it's potentially a bigger opportunity set when domestic markets might be running a bit hot. As investors, we're always seeking information that will confirm we're doing the right thing, that we've made the right move. This is called confirmation bias. This argument is one that is particularly prevalent with Aussie investors because we're very much investors that like to invest domestically and rely on multinationals to provide us exposure to other markets or economies. And there's always arguments against international investments. They go a little bit like this. The currency risk and fluctuations are another level of complexity that investors don't need. There's no franking. They're not comfortable with international investing. Jack Bogle and Warren Buffett both professed that their exclusion of other countries was purely preference. Investors are allowed to have preferences. Ultimately, you need to be comfortable with the investments that you hold and confident in their success. Sometimes, though, this comfort zone can force us to hold a risk and return profile that doesn't suit our goal and an asset class with limited opportunities. Just like we are comfortable with our investments, we also need to be comfortable that it can result in us missing opportunities that help us reach our goals. And we've been lucky that Aussie markets have performed exceptionally well in the past. So this concentration has served us. It would be folly to extrapolate this into the future as the conditions have changed. The majority of listed companies and industries in Australia are maturing and growth is slowing. As mentioned, the IMF doesn't think that that's where growth lies in the future and that it lies with emerging markets. Okay, so a bit of a summary. For investors, the globalized revenue sources do blur the lines between their domestic equities and their international equities portion. Jack Bogle and Warren Buffett weren't wrong when they claimed that you can get global exposure from domestic companies, but it cannot replicate foreign markets, their conditions, the legislation and the regulation. It cannot replicate investment opportunity sets outside of borders. It cannot replicate sector diversification. It is not a replacement, in our opinion, to international investments that offer true diversification. All right. So that's our episode for today. As always, we would love to hear from you. So either a comment in your podcast app, or of course, send me an email. My email address is in the show notes. And you can also send along a birthday wish for Shawnee for hitting the big 3-0 or offer her advice for what to do in her 30s. Thank you very much for listening. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.